Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Welcome to episode 53 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been another bumper week for financial crime this week, so my hopes that there would be an ease down in work were short-lived. Lots of news on just about everything, except for sanctions, which seem to be ebbing away. There'll be a roundup of cyber-attack news, of course, at the end. Links to the principal documents which are mentioned throughout the podcast can be found in the podcast description. We'll start this week with that small amount of news on sanctions. It has been another quiet week on sanctions, only a few bits and pieces rearing. We'll start with the US, where the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control has sanctioned a Slovakian national for attempting to facilitate an arms deal between Russia and North Korea. Attempts by Russia either itself or through intermediaries to procure military equipment either to replace that which has been lost since the beginning of its invasion of Ukraine or to acquire better equipment than it already has have become increasingly common as a feature as the war has progressed. Russia has flirted with China as a source of new equipment but one would hope that they would have more sense than to throw all in with Putin. However, stranger things have happened. The link to the U.S. Treasury Department announcement is in the podcast description. In the U.S., no, in the U.K., the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has made updates to the cyber financial sanctions regime together with the Russian financial sanctions regime, and the updated lists can be found in the podcast description if you want to have a look at them. Now we'll move away from sanctions this week and on to fraud. There's a usual good range of fraud news this week. We'll start, as we did with sanctions, over in the US, where the US Department of Justice has announced that the former CEO of startup Frank, that's the name of the company, has been charged in relation to a $175 million fraud. Charlie Javis has been charged with falsely inflating the number of customers Frank had in order to induce JP Morgan Chase to acquire the company. Javis personally stood to gain $45 million from the transaction, and she has been released on bond of $2 million. The DOJ has also announced a guilty plea from an individual charged in relation to a $3 million Medicare fraud. Links to both can be found in the podcast description. To the UK now, and we start by looking back at a story which we covered in episode 44 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, namely the large-scale fraud carried out by Bally PLC and its executives. This week, the Serious Fraud Office has announced the sentences for those convicted of the fraud. Three executives executives were imprisoned for between three and six and a half years. Link to the press releases in the podcast description. Back to another fraud story. Only this one was covered last week, namely food fraud and the mislabeling as British food, which was not British. The Food Standards Agency, as well as announcing that a criminal investigation into the matter continues, released a full statement on the meat fraud investigation. Both statements can be found in the podcast description. In news of further fraud convictions, only this time it's investment fraud, 
the Financial Conduct Authority has announced the conviction of three individuals. The scam claimed around 120 victims and netted the fraudsters around £1.2 million. The link to the press release can be found in the podcast description. We'll stick with the UK for the final story this week, where the Ministry of Justice has warned of a scam where fraudsters are using the Ministry of Justice telephone number to convince unwitting members of the public to pay them money to avoid a larger fine or court proceedings. This is not an uncommon scam, and the Ministry of Justice has warned about this before. It seems to raise itself from time to time, so it's just as well to be aware of it. I've linked the recent warning which was made this week and the legacy warning which was on the Ministry of Justice website in the podcast description. That's it for fraud. We'll now move over to bribery and corruption. And we'll start with an oldie but a goodie. Ericsson, the telecoms and tech company, is back in the news this week after the shareholders voted at its annual general meeting not to discharge the CEO and most of its board from liability for their actions in 2022. It will be recalled, of course, that Ericsson was fined by the United States for its involvement in alleged bribes made to militants in Ericsson's activity in Iraq. The vote exposes the board to possible legal risk since it may be sued, the board members may be sued either by the company itself or by its investors, a good example of corporate accountability. On which subject? International law firm Clyde & Co. has published its Directors and Officers Liability Survey 2023. You need to sign up to download it, but joining an email list is the common cost of these proprietary surveys nowadays. If you don't mind getting an email, which will inevitably end up in your spam folder, then the link to sign up is in the podcast description. The next story is not technically labelled as bribery, but it falls more literally into kickbacks, I suppose, since it's concerned with breach of the US anti-kickback statute. Genetox Laboratories Limited of Austin, Texas, has, quotes, agreed to pay at least $5.9 million to resolve False Claims Act allegations that it paid volume-based commissions to third-party marketers in violation of the anti-kickback statute and submitted claims to federal health care programs for unnecessary drug tests. In parallel proceedings, the U.S. Attorney's Office for Western District of Texas and Genetex entered into an 18-month deferred prosecution agreement to resolve an investigation, a criminal investigation, regarding the same conduct. Link is in the podcast description. I'll end this week's roundup of bribery and corruption stories with a story which is not technically about bribery and corruption, but, yeah, it's the best place for it to be. I know it sounds odd, but an Australian mayor has or may bring proceedings against information provided by ChatGPT, the AI-generated interface, Apparently, it confused him as the perpetrator and not, as was in fact the case, the whistleblower in a bribery and corruption scandal which eventually led to the arrest and ultimate imprisonment of others. I realise that it's at very early stages, all this AI brave new world thing, but from the interactions I've had with it, especially ChatGPT, I must say I'm less than impressed with it. I was asking it quite a lot of trusts and landlord questions the other week 
and its answers were, I think, chaotic would be my best description of them. Anyway, so this is an interesting case, confusing the perpetrator with the person who was, in fact, the whistleblower. The link to the story, which came to me on the BBC website, is in the podcast description, but I think you'll find it across most of the media outlets across this week. That's it for bribery and anti-corruption this week, and now we turn to money laundering, where it's been, well, a very busy week, actually. The first piece of money laundering news comes courtesy of an interesting story from the National Crime Agency in the United Kingdom, which has announced the conviction of a couple for money laundering. In May 2020, which you may remember was during the first national lockdown in the United Kingdom, Ardian Shara and Alvalbona Laloshi were stopped at Folkestone by border control agents and found to have over £200,000 in cash in various bags. Subsequent investigations found evidence of further significant cash deposits in bank accounts in their names. Shara received an 18-month suspended sentence and 200 hours unpaid work, while Laloshi received a 12-month community order and 50 hours unpaid work. The cash will be confiscated. I can't find where the money came from to be laundered, so it's a little bit frustrating all that, but the link to the National Crime Agency press release is in the podcast description. The other story comes from the US, where the Department of Justice has announced the conviction of a Boston man for money laundering. Mark Anthony Figueroa used clandestine deliveries of cash to currency couriers to launder the proceeds of drug trafficking on behalf of Mexican drug cartels. A classic scenario. Link to the press release in the podcast description. Back to the UK now for more enforcement action taken by the Gambling Commission against a gambling company for failures in its anti-money laundering systems and controls. And of course, also, as is usually the case, these things tend to be allied with obligations which have been breached in relation to corporate social responsibility. This time, the company concerned is TGP Europe, which has paid a penalty of £316,250. Specifically, the anti-money laundering failures are, this is a direct quote, not having a money laundering and terrorist financing risk assessment which adequately addressed risk, such as customers providing false or stolen identification documents and risks linked to complex or unusually large transactions. Not adequately considering and mitigating the money laundering risks posed by their business-to-business relationships, having ineffective policies and procedures in relation to due diligence undertaken prior to white label agreements. Additional license conditions setting out action the licensee must take to ensure thorough due diligence checks are conducted have been added to the operator's license. The press release and the notice of regulatory action can be found in the podcast description. To the European Union now, where the European Data Protection Board has adopted a letter to a range of EU institutions on data sharing for anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism purposes. The letter to the European Parliament, the Council of the European Union and the European Commission provides as follows, highlights the significant risks to privacy and data protection posed by some amendments introduced by the Council, which allows private entities 
under certain conditions to share personal data between each other for anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorist purposes concerning suspicious transactions and data collected in the course of performing custom due diligence obligations. The EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, expresses serious concerns about the lawfulness, necessity and proportionality of these provisions, which, would re- which could result in very large-scale processing by private entities. The EDPB considers that the amendments do not adequately specify the conditions under which such processing is justified and that they do not provide sufficient safeguards given that such processing could have a significant impact on individuals such as blacklisting and exclusion from financial services. The EDPB therefore recommends the co-legislatures not to include these provisions in the final text of the proposal. Sticking with the anti-money laundering theme in the European Union, only this time it's the European Central Bank and the comments of Eduard Fernandez-Bolo, who is a member of the supervisory board of the European Central Bank, which has been published on Europa. These comments have been published on Europa. In the comments, Fernandez-Bolo welcomes the establishment of the new EU anti-money laundering authority as providing a role in the harmonisation of approach across the EU in this important area and in a nod to the previous story on money laundering and the letter from the European Data Protection Board, Fernandez-Bolo states that data sharing and effective cooperation between AML and CFT supervisors and supervisory authorities will be needed. Link to the reasonably brief, if less than startling, comments are in the podcast description. Now, away from money laundering to regulatory action, and I suppose unusually there's quite a bit of this. The principal regulatory news this week is the publication by the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK of its business plan for 2023-2024. Insofar as reducing and preventing financial crime is concerned, the Financial Conduct Authority rehearses its commitment to combating it, Phew, that would have been awkward if they decided to give it a miss for a year. With the stated outcomes of to slow the growth in investment fraud victims and losses, to slow the growth in authorised push payment fraud cases and losses, and the reduction in financial crime by lowering the incidence of money laundering through the firms we supervise directly and improving the effectiveness of supervision by professional body supervisors. These will be achieved by building on work already being undertaken, but in addition for 23-24, first, by increasing the use of data to better identify which firms are more susceptible to receiving the proceeds of fraud and ensuring that they are doing more to stop the flow of illegitimate funds in its tracks. Secondly, by increasing the volume of its proactive assessments of firms, anti-money laundering systems and controls, Thirdly, by the development of more data-led analytical tools to use in its anti-money laundering supervisory work. And fourthly, by ensuring it has effective oversight of firms communicating and approving financial promotions, including qualifying crypto assets when they are bought within the financial promotion perimeter, and that firms only do so if they have the relevant competence and expertise The Financial Conduct Authority also wants to deliver assertive action on combating market abuse. The outcomes to be achieved are first, increased confidence in the integrity 
of UK markets, which maintains high levels of participation across the buy side and sell side. Secondly, timely and accurate disclosure of inside information. Thirdly, financial firms and issuers are more resilient to market abuse, having robust systems and controls, high-quality reporting practices, and a strong anti-market abuse culture. And fourthly and finally, criminal, civil, and supervisory sanctions are brought to bear on wrongdoers to provide effective deterrence. These outcomes will be achieved by continuing with actions already taken, but additionally by, first, significantly improving its detection and prosecution of fixed income and commodities market manipulation through increased data capture, improved analytics, a dedicated non-equity manipulation team, and an increased enforcement and increased enforcement resources. Secondly, by coordinated approach across the Financial Conduct Authority on very high-risk firms where multiple regulatory failures, including market abuse, undermine market confidence. Thirdly, in primary markets, continuing its work on timely and accurate market disclosures, augmenting this with an increased focus on prevention and compliance via better education and further work on detecting potentially misleading disclosures. Finally, with further work on transparency of persons discharging management responsibility, dealings and developing a strategy for combating unlawful disclosure, helping to limit opportunities for insider dealing. Link to the business plan can be found in the podcast description. Now, the final story this week comes in the form of a warning to Finfluencers. Yep, you heard me right. Financial influencers, which is a thing, apparently. The Financial Conduct Authority and the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK have engaged an influencer called Sharon Gafka, who I did have to Google, to help them warn Finfluencers of the dangers associated with making an illegal financial promotion. In last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we reported, you may remember, on action which had been taken by the US Securities and Exchange Commission against a number of celebrities for illegally touting certain crypto assets without disclosing that they were compensated for doing so and the amount of their compensation. So I suppose there is a danger, and generally speaking, I embrace this sort of thing. I think it's a good idea. Because, of course, the interesting aspect which I find from this story is that education is needed for these Finfluencers. Always a fan of education to prevent financial wrongs. I think it's a great idea. Link to the story and the charming infographic, which has clearly been produced for the Instagram generation, is in the podcast description. That's it for the wealth of regulatory information this week. Now we move on to finally look at the usual roundup of cyber, cyber attack news, and there's been plenty of it. We start with a story which we trailed last week, but which at the time was not confirmed as a cyber attack. You'll remember that Capita announced that employees were struggling to log, in, log into its systems and that phone lines were down. At the time, a cyber attack was not known to have happened. Well, this week, it's been confirmed as a cyber attack, but its nature is as yet unknown and indeed undisclosed. The next is that the Dutch Football Association has been the victim of a cyber attack this week. Its full extent is not yet known, but the Dutch FA has confirmed that employee data has been stolen. 
the data breach has been reported in line with its compliance obligations. In Germany, half of the country's federal states were the subject of cyber attacks, which impacted official websites this week. We'll stick with Germany. The medical research and pharmaceutical company Evotech has been the victim of a cyber attack. It was announced on its website. According to the press release, systems were shut down proactively and disconnected from the internet to secure from data corruption or breaches. The IT systems are currently being examined and the scope of the impact is being reviewed. Highest diligence will be applied to data integrity. Another hacking story from Australia, whose businesses have experienced a number of cyber attacks recently. This time it's news that about 16,000 documents from the Tasmanian Education Department, which of course includes personal information about children, have been uh, taken and it is believed released. To the US now, where a number of cyber attacks have been reported. First, Lumen Technologies has announced in reports to the Securities and Exchange Commission that it's been the victim of two recent cyber attacks. Interestingly, the nature of one of the attacks was the insertion by an intruder of ransomware into some of the company's servers. Public schools in the Kansas Schools District were closed this week following a network security incident. Classes resumed as normal on Friday. Sensitive data belonging to a number of drivers working with Uber have uh, had their personal detail taken in a recent cyber attack the company confirmed through its lawyers this week. And there's an interesting one to follow up to a story we've looked at previously in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and that's the ransomware group, which attacked the Modesto Police Department's IT network, has started to release the information on its website. Now, to a bit of tech news, and cybersecurity researchers have claimed this week that they were able to hijack Microsoft Microsoft's Bing search engine. They changed search results and inserted code which could have been used in a significant loss of data to anybody who uses Office 365, and there must be hundreds of millions of users of that throughout the world. More news from cyber researchers, now with the disclosure that a new phishing campaign from, it's believed, Russia has exploited an apparent vulnerability in Zimbra collaboration software to hack the emails of government agencies in a range of European countries. Another interesting story, this time from our new old friend AI. Darktrace, the cybersecurity AI corporation, has identified significantly more than a doubling of what are described as novel social engineering attacks since ChatGPT became widely available. In the UK now, where we end this week's roundup, it's been reported that the UK Criminal Records Office has been fighting off a cyber attack for the last two months. It would seem that there is nothing official on this at the moment, but it is being widely reported in the mainstream press, so I suppose it's a matter of watching this space for some kind of official announcement to come out. We'll stick with the UK and the National Cyber Security Centre has issued a threat report against the 3CX desktop app. Link to more information about the advisory is in the podcast description. And finally this week, sticking with the National Cyber Security Centre, it was announced the launch of two new services designed to help UK businesses stay secure online and protect their livelihoods. 
The Cyber Action Plan and the Check Your Cyber Security services are free and can be accessed from links in the podcast description. Worth mentioning that the Cyber Action Plan is for small organisations as well as individuals and families, so you could all check that out this weekend. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being very well indeed, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.